Good morning. It's uh, Happy New Year. It's 2020. Here we are. If you've been with us the last couple weeks, a lot of exciting things have happened. A lot of firsts for Redemption Church. We had our first Christmas Eve service, uh, which was fantastic. Really loved worshiping with you all on Christmas Eve. Um, Last week, we had Marty preach uh, his first sermon at Redemption Church. I'm very grateful uh, for the job that Marty did and how he handled the word. I was very encouraged by the message that he brought. I had the opportunity, uh, since I had the day off, to go and take a long weekend and visit some family in Georgia. And so I actually got to worship with my granny. Uh, That's on my mom's side. Uh, One of the few times uh, in my entire life that I've got to uh, attend church and worship alongside of her. So it was a really cool experience uh, to be with some family. And um, it was 70 degrees there. Uh, So I tried to bring that back, but it didn't work. Um, But I want to thank you for the opportunity to get away and uh, enjoy some family time last week. We have uh, some things going on that I want you to be aware of. Last night was uh, a student ministry outing uh, to Zone 28, and uh, there were several students that took advantage of that. We're going to be planning those for every month, so we're in the process of putting together a schedule of some activities that we're going to do. That's for students who are in 6th through 12th grade, and uh, really want to encourage those students and the parents of those students who are in here uh, to participate in that. There's a lot of value and getting together with some other uh, people in your age group to explore what it means to know Jesus and to follow him, but also to have fun and build some relationships together. So that's what last night was about. It was really about just building some relationships together and having fun. And so there'll be more events like that coming up. Um, Some of them um, will, well, they'll just have different purposes. Some of them will be more relational. Many of them will be more spiritually driven where we want students to experience the God that created them, and to know the reason that he has them here in this generation and how he wants to use them. So I'm excited for that in 2020. Um, We're starting a new sermon series today. We're going to look at the four core values that we hold to as a church. Uh, We'll take one each week, and then um, uh, in February we'll move on into, I believe we're going to go into Ecclesiastes as our next uh, sermon series after this one. So just to give you a heads up on some of the things that are coming up and to know what to expect over the next few weeks. Let me ask you this question as we get started and look at the word together today. What is this that I have in my hand? There are many different ways to answer that question, aren't there? I mean, the most basic and simplest answer that this is a Bible. Most of you probably recognize that uh, from where you're sitting, that this is a Bible. You can tell uh, by the shiny pages, the leather cover. Uh, There's some things that give it away. It says Holy Bible right there on it. That's kind of one of the things that, that might tip you off. But what is the Bible? Is this a collection of wise sayings? Is this a collection of mythical stories? Is this the word of the living God? How you view this book, what you understand it to be, is one of the most important beliefs that we hold to as Christians. And I want to talk about what it means to view this as the word of God Today, One of our core values, our first core value, is that we are Bible-centered. Perhaps that sounds uh, a little bit obvious to you, that a church would be Bible-centered, depending on your experience. But it's been my experience that many churches, more and more churches today, are becoming less and less Bible-centered. There are are a few 
uh, churches who have just outright said they've done away with the Bible, uh, but they're in the minority. I think most churches would say they hold to the Bible, but there are surprisingly few who in practice actually keep the Bible at the center of what they do and how they operate. It's become sort of something that's been placed on the back burner. So as we, as we launched Redemption Church, we, we said one of the things we want to be is we want to be Bible-centered. We want to look to the Word of God for all that we do, all that we believe, and all that we practice. This is going to determine who we are as a church. We want to be people of the Word, not of the world. And sadly, I think there are more and more churches that look more like the world than they do the Word. And so it's our humble desire that we not be that. That we seek God and ask Him to make us a people who are Bible-centered. To make us, if you will, an organization of such that is Bible-centered. And so the first of our core values, Bible-centered. I'll give you all four of them just so you know where we're going. We want to be Bible-centered. We want to be gospel-driven. We promote what we call grace-based daily discipleship. That one's a little bit of a mouthful. We'll unpack that in a couple of weeks. And all the while, we are pursuing multiplication. Those are our four core values. The first is the most foundational because it's where the other three come from. It's from the Bible. It's from God's Word that we get those other three. And so there's a lot to this one. We won't attempt to say it all in one sermon, um, but I want to quickly affirm some of the things that we believe as a church about the Bible. We believe the Bible to be God-breathed. That means it's inspired by Him. We believe that the Bible is authoritative. That, in fact, it is the primary source of authority for the church today. Not human beings, but the Word of God. We believe that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. We believe that the Bible is sufficient in other words, that it, it says everything that we need to know to live faithfully before God here on earth. We believe the Bible is understandable. It doesn't mean that everything in it is abundantly clear, but overall the Bible is sufficiently understandable when read intelligently. We believe the Bible is necessary. It is timeless and it is effective. It's the first and last of those characteristics that I want to look at today. To do that, we'll look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 together. And I'm going to read just verses 13 and 14. You can follow along on the screen or on your own personal Bible. 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 13 through 14. This is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the Word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews. This, of course, is another one of Paul's letters, the book uh, of 1 Thessalonians. It was written to the church in a town called Thessalonica, and there was a group of believers there, a church plant that had been established, and Paul is referring back to the experience they had when they first heard the message of the gospel uh, from he and the other apostles. And he says, we thank God because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, think about that. The message they heard was not delivered to them in the same form that we receive it, which is the written word. 
most of us probably come to this book with the, the, the general consensus or idea that, that what I'm about to read is the Word of God. Because it's been written down and it's been preserved for us over the last 2,000 years and many people around us have referred to it as the Word of God. When these early believers heard this message, it was sort of the Word of man in that it was coming to them as a verbal message. They had to decide whether or not this new message that was being preached to them was indeed from God or if this was the word of man. And Paul says, I thank God. Because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is. The word of God. As it truly is. The first thing you see in your handout is that the Bible is not from man, but from God. When you stop and think about it, that's a kind of, it's a, that's a bold statement to make. Especially in the first century, I think they had some work to do to convince people that this message they had was not from man, but from God. Fortunately, the Holy Spirit was the one who was doing that work, and he was doing that through Many different means, and, and we'll look at some of those. We can't look at all of those. There are many evidences. There are many convincing proofs in my mind that this is the Word of God. But I simply want to focus on the fact that the Bible is not from man, but from God. And that is how those early believers received it. Second Peter Chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. This one I don't think will be on the screen behind me, so you just have to listen closely as I read. Peter, another one of the apostles who was going around preaching the same message that Paul was preaching, he said in, in one of his letters, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Before I read the rest of that passage, let me just stop there. Peter's responding to a reality of the time. It was a reality in their day, and I think it's becoming more and more a reality in our day as skepticism about this book has increased. This is nothing new. He says, we did not follow, follow cleverly contrived myths. Why would he say that to them? Because no doubt there were people who believed that these were cleverly contrived myths. In other words, in that first century, just like today, there were doubters. There were people who said, this is being made up. We're being tricked here. There's, there's an ulterior, ulterior motive to this message. Peter says, no, we didn't follow these cleverly contrived myths. We made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses. He says, we saw it with our own eyes. It's important to know that this debate over whether or not this is truly the word of God or whether this is just contrived of man is not a new debate. It's important to understand that that is a debate that happened immediately when the apostles began to preach the message of the gospel. There were some from the very beginning who said that Jesus did not rise from the dead, that this is not the word of God, and that this is cleverly contrived myths, that this is made up by man. 
The reason that is important to understand is because it's not like modern man has all of a sudden been enlightened with skepticism and started to say, hey, wait a minute. I'll bet nobody ever thought about this before, but maybe those guys just made this up. People have been thinking about that all for the, for the last 2,000 years. Now, that may or may not be comforting to you, but it's comforting to me to know that in, in spite of those objections in the first century, the word of God proved to be true. Why was Peter convinced that this was the word of God? First of all, think about the life of Peter. Peter became a follower of Jesus in the beginning of his ministry, and he was with him throughout the majority of Jesus' earthly ministry, and he was there at Jesus' death. Of the things that he saw with his own eyes were the last breaths of Jesus himself. He was as convinced as anybody that Jesus truly died. He knew this to be true. And for that reason, he walked away disheartened and discouraged. He thought that whatever it was that Jesus was up to had suddenly come to a, to a harsh end at the cross. And with his head hanging low, having disowned Jesus during his trial, he went about his old business. And he went back to fishing. And one of my favorite stories of the gospel is when Jesus appeared to Peter in this state of defeat, in this state of lowliness. And I have to think that one of the last things that Jesus wanted to do was to stand before Jesus that Peter wanted to do was to stand before Jesus and explain why he disowned him those three times. And when he sees, sees Jesus for the first time after his resurrection, Jesus calls out to Peter. He's, doing, he's back to his old business. He's doing what he used to do before he started following Jesus. He's out there fishing. And Jesus calls out, and he makes known who he is to Peter. And Peter jumps out of his boat. He swims to land, and he comes running up to Jesus. And Jesus restores him by, by backtracking through his three denials. And Jesus asks him three times, if you love me. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you, Lord. He says, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And he, three times they go through this process as if Jesus is letting him know, I know that three times you denied me. And I'm giving you the chance again to express your love and your faith in me. And three times Peter did that. And so when Peter is writing in 2 Peter chapter 1, he is, he is writing out of incredibly deep experiences with Jesus. This was not somebody who knew him superficially, but somebody who knew him personally and who, whose life was impacted immeasurably by Jesus' relationship with him. He says, we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he references in verse 17, probably the most significant event of his time with Jesus on earth. He says, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. He's referring back to what's called the Mount of Transfiguration. This was an event before Jesus' death on the cross where Jesus grabbed just a couple of his followers. 
He says, hey, you three, come with me. I want to show you something. And they go up on this mountain together. And before their very eyes, Jesus was transfigured. That means his appearance changed dramatically. He became, Peter describes it this way. He received honor and glory from God the Father. He was, trans- he was changed in front of them, and then suddenly, appearing with Jesus, were Elijah and Moses, two of the most significant characters from the Old Testament, representing the law and the prophets. And so the, the, the disciples were so moved by this, they said, this is, this is good for us to be here, Lord, which is one of the biggest understatements ever made. Why don't we make some tents so that we can just stay here together? And then this voice comes from heaven. God the Father himself says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, this is quite a lot to take in and and to receive. You're telling me that Peter saw Jesus transformed. He was like morphed. He looked different. And that suddenly two guys who have been dead for hundreds, one of them hundreds of years, the other one over a thousand years, have been dead for that long, appeared, and a voice comes from heaven? This is quite the supernatural event. Let's stop and think about the fact that Peter had plenty of time and opportunity to back away from these claims. It would have been, let's say, physically advantageous to him to back away from these claims. It did not advance him in earthly terms to hold to this idea that he saw Jesus transfigured before him and that Moses and Elijah appeared. Keep in mind he's not the only eyewitness of this. He says, uh, instead we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Then he goes on to say in verse 19, okay, so eyewitnesses are his first testimony. We saw it, we heard it, we experienced it. We were there he was there during Jesus's earthly ministry he was there during the transfiguration he was there during Jesus's crucifixion he was there after Jesus's resurrection he saw him after his he he was eyewitnesses to all of these things there's there's virtually nothing of significance here about the life of Jesus and his death, his resurrection, his appearances that Peter was not an eyewitness to. He was there. That's his testimony. Then he says in verse 19, we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed and you would do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The second witness that Peter points to, the first is his his own eyes and ears. He saw with his own eyes, and what he saw was that God the Father said that this is my son. And that Moses and Elijah testified to the same. There are no greater witnesses that you could bring to a Jewish audience than God, Moses, and Elijah. Peter says all three of those confirmed this gospel. All three of those confirmed who Jesus is. 
And we were eyewitnesses of it. The second, eyewit- or the second testimony that he points to is Old Testament prophecy. He says, you don't believe my story? You don't believe that I saw this with my own eyes or that I heard this with my own ears? Look at the scriptures. And so what they had at that time was, was the entirety of what we have as the Old Testament. That was their Bible. That was the word of God in that day. He says, look at the scriptures. Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. How does he say it? The prophetic word strongly confirmed. You will do well to pay attention to it. He doesn't say, you know, if this was some sort of cleverly contrived myth, you think there might be an attempt to get people's attention away from the prophetic word. If Jesus didn't adequately satisfy the demands of Old Testament prophecy, they'd have been like, hey, hey, never mind what the Old Testament said. This is, we, we know this because we saw it. No, he says, pay attention, study the word, look at the Bible. Does not Jesus confirm what we saw in there as prophetically given to us? Strongly confirmed. What was happening during the first century is the apostles and the eyewitnesses were going around and they were arguing that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And they were doing this in the generation during which these things happened. This is not something that Americans made up 2,000 years later because we like the message. This was something that was fought for from day one by people who believed it to be true. People who were eyewitnesses. People who were studying the scriptures and saying Jesus came in fulfillment of all that was written to us. And they had to do this in the generation that these things happened. In fact, at one point, Paul's arguing for the resurrection. He says there were 500 witnesses of Jesus' body after he was resurrected. There were 500 people that saw the resurrected Jesus. And he says, if you don't believe, he basically says, you don't believe me, go ask them. He says, many of whom are still alive. You don't make those kinds of claims in the presence of people who could easily refute them. The witnesses were all supporting this message. They were all saying the same thing. Over 500 people saw him, Paul said. So we have eyewitness testimony. We have fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. The conclusion that those in the first century came to and the conclusion that uh, the Thessalonians came to the conclusion that millions, perhaps billions of believers since that time have come to is that this is the word of God. That this is God's word inspired by him. Breathed out, the scriptures tell us. I'm going to show you a couple of things. That the, now this is internal testimony. There's external testimony and there's internal testimony. I'm going to look at some internal testimony, okay? Second Timothy Chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Where it says there, all scripture is inspired by God, literally means breathed out. The Bible is not dictated by God. 
at least most of it is. Some parts are, there are portions of Scripture like the Ten Commandments where God dictated to Moses, these are the words I want you to write down. But for the most part, the Bible comes to us inspired by the Holy Spirit through human authors who chose their own words, who wrote according to their own personalities and their own experiences, all the while being carried along, inspired by God himself through the Holy Spirit. Breathed out And therefore, Paul says it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That was Paul's testimony. Peter's testimony goes like this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, he says, Also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they do with the rest of the scriptures. So Paul refers to scripture as being inspired by God and and breathed out by him. Okay, profitable for, for teaching and use within the church, right? He doesn't define what exactly is scripture? Is he referring to the Old Testament? Is he referring to some of the letters that were being circulated at the time that would become for us the New Testament? He doesn't explicitly say what he's referring to. But Peter, in one of his letters, refers to the letters of Paul or the teachings of Paul as scripture. He says, he says uh, there are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they do with the rest of the scriptures. The reason that is significant is because there begins to develop this idea in the very first generation of the church that what we have as the New Testament is to be regarded alongside of the Old Testament as the Holy Word of God, as the Scriptures. Okay? The Bible, this is the conclusion that they came to that I want to advocate we come to today. The Bible is God-breathed. It is His Word. This is not a message from man. It comes to us through men, but it does not have its origin in man. It comes from God himself. Okay. So the first point there was that the Bible is not from man, but from God. The second thing you see on your handout, the Bible is effective in those who believe. The Bible is effective in those who believe. Let's go back to our passage in 1 Thessalonians. Verse 13 says, this is why we constantly thank God. Let me review here. Because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, verse 14, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things from the people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews. It is effective in those who believe. We see the evidence of that in the Thessalonians. We see the evidence of that in all of the churches that Paul and the other apostles wrote to. There is change happening. We just spent a few months in the book of Ephesians, which was a city that was transformed by the gospel message as a church was planted there and people became transformed. They became changed as the word of God came to them. The two evidences we see here in this particular text 
Two evidences that they had received the message, of, or, uh, message as the word of God and not of man was that they became imitators, imitators of others who had believed and received the gospel. And secondly, they endured suffering from believing and receiving the gospel. That's one of the ultimate tests to whether or not you truly receive the Bible as the word of God. If you endure suffering. Suffering has a way of separating the real from the fake. When things get hard, when things get difficult, when there's opposition to believing, that's when your faith is tested. Well, for the Thessalonians, their faith proved true. It proved true that they were holding on to this message as the word of God because they became imitators of others who had believed and that they endured suffering for believing and receiving the gospel. There was great opposition to the gospel message for those first century believers. They did not believe the word of God without negative consequence. The the Jews who held to it, there was a great divide in, in Judaism in the first century because many of the Jews, many of the Jews embraced Jesus as the Messiah and believed in the gospel and they, 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 they went on a different trajectory because of that. And then there were the Jews who refused, who rejected Jesus. And there was, there was incredible tension between the two. And there was a great effort among the Jews who, who held that Jesus was not the Messiah to stop these Jewish believers from preaching the gospel. And so in almost every town where the gospel went, there was persecution for the believers. And then persecution came from the Romans and and it became more and more severe. It was not without consequence that they believed and held to the Bible as the word of God. Let me show you a couple things under the Bible is effective in those who believe. Some familiar passages of scripture perhaps. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 through 13 which says, For the word of God is living and effective. Sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's been said of the Bible that the Bible is the one book that once you begin reading it, the next thing you know is it's reading you. It's living. It's effective. It's active. It's, it's the, we call it the living word of God because it's alive. It, it has an effect on us. It, when we receive the word of God and believe it, then it comes and, it, and it, it brings about change. It brings about transformation. It brings about renewal. It, it is the message of Jesus Christ that redeems us. So God's word is effective in those who believe because it's living and active It's no stale book. When you read the Bible, it brings about change in your life. That's why for the last, well, for thousands of years, even going back to Old Testament times, those who believe have been attempting to live their lives according to the word. That's what we're called to, to live our lives in light of what we read. We don't just read to gain information. We read to experience transformation and to be directed and to be led by the word of God. That's why Psalm 119 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping your word. 
The psalmist said, I have sought you with all my heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Lord, may you be blessed. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I proclaim all the judgments from your mouth. I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways, and I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. That's the attitude we're called to have towards this book. First of all, we see here in the psalmist belief that this is the word of God. He says, I will proclaim all the judgments from your mouth. He refers to the Bible as God's word. He speaks of God's commands. He says, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. That implies that keeping God's word in your heart has the ability to keep us from sinning against God. It's living and active. It's effective. It takes root and it does what only the word of God can do. Therefore, the psalmist says he will meditate on it. He will think about it. He will delight in it. And he will not forget it. Has that been your attitude towards the word of God? That we'll meditate on it? Do you rejoice in the Bible as much as in all riches as the psalmist says? We ought to treasure this book. We ought to treasure the fact, the reality that we have the word of God. In fact, we have greater access to the Bible than any generation ever in human history. It's not even close. Not even close. Even even in this New Testament time that we live in, the majority of people who have lived over the last 2,000 years have not had access to a personal copy of the Bible. That's unbelievable. I've had dozens of my own. I have thrown away. I know people freak out sometimes when, when I say you can't. Well, I don't know what you're supposed to do with an old Bible. But at some point you've you got to get rid of it. I've had, I've had people bring me. Um, I want to be careful how, how I say it. I've had people bring me Bibles that they no longer wanted for reasons I won't get into. And said, I don't know what to do with this. Can you dispose of this for me? People don't want to, want to get rid of Bibles. But I've had so many Bibles that I've thrown some Bibles away. I've torn them up. I've, I've not in anger, but you know, I've, I've ripped out pages to keep them with me and, and to, to meditate on them. We have greater access to the Bible than any generation ever in human history. That's incredible. I can read the Bible on my phone. I can have the Bible read to me as I go about my day. I can have my phone remind me what the Bible says. Our core value, as we state it, goes like this. Bible-centered. We believe that God's Word, preached, taught, shared among each other, and studied individually is the means by which God grows his people. That's what we want to communicate as our core value. We believe that God's word, preached, taught, shared among each other, and studied individually, is the means by which God grows his people. So take, let's combine a couple of the things we've said. This is the word of God. It is effective in those who receive it and believe it. 
We have greater access to it ever than ever before. And it is the means by which God grows his people. Therefore, I want to ask this simple question. What will you do with the Bible this year? What are you going to do with it? You have access to the words of God. The creator, sustainer of the universe has spoken. He has made known himself to us. He has revealed his plan. And he's given it to you. So what will you do with it? Put it on the shelf. Leave it there the rest of the year. Ignore it on, as one of the apps that you perhaps you have on your phone. Or you open it. Will you read it? Will you study it? Will you memorize it? Will you meditate on it? Will you learn how to interpret it? Will you, will you work to understand it, even the difficult parts? I said at the beginning, we want to be a people of the word, not people of the world. There's only one way to make that happen. That's to get into it, to take it up and to read it, to think about it, to share it with each other, to look at it again and again and again, to be people of the word. If we want our lives to reflect this book, then this book has to be a part of our lives on a regular basis. We got to do that this year. That's our one of our goals in 2020 that we would be people of the word. One of my goals as pastor is to equip you to help you know how to read it. It's it's it is unique. Not every part of it is 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 obvious and understandable at first glance, but there are there are skills that we can develop and, and things that we can apply to help us understand properly the Word of God. So let me just make a couple of suggestions. I'm going to make three. One, make a plan. I know it's, it, it's kind of cliche at the beginning of the year to set goals and, and to make plans for things that we're going to do. Uh, that being said, it's, I think, a very good idea to have a plan for 2020 of what you're going to do with this book. Make it reasonable. Um, make it smart, make it attainable, make it something that you actually have the potential to do. If you've never read through the Bible, cover to cover, don't say, I'm going to read through the Bible three times this year because that it may not happen. <laughs> and you might get surprised to find out there's a reason you haven't read it cover to cover. But I do want to challenge you to make a plan to get into the Word. There's some, there's some things that I use to do that. There are several apps, of course, uh, that uh, you probably noticed if you've never downloaded a Bible. I've probably noticed even in this room today, people have had their phones out looking at the Bible on their phone. Uh, you, can get a, you can get apps that have just a single translation, uh, or you can get an app that gives you access to multiple translations. The most popular one is called the YouVersion app. Uh, and if you just 
go to your app store and search for version. It'll pop up. It'll say Holy Bible. We'll have a picture of a book on it. And it has virtually every modern English translation on there. Uh, what's really beautiful about this app is it has lots of Bible reading plans that you can go through by yourself. If you're not sure where to read or how to start, uh, there's lots of easy-to-follow plans on there. Some are better than others, um, but they're on there, and that's a resource, and you can go through those plans with each other. Uh, that's something I've used quite a bit. Uh, so get, the, get a Bible app, have it on your phone. Uh, maybe get a new print Bible. Uh, one of the ways that I encourage myself to go through the Bible again occasionally is to buy a new Bible. I don't, I just, it's, it's nice to get a new Bible and to start marking it up and to start with a kind of a blank slate here and to begin to study almost for the first time again the Word of God and to get in. Uh, so maybe you want to, to get a new print Bible. There's a book that we went through prior to our public launch. Uh, those who are part of our, our launch team to help start Redemption Church. Uh, there's a book called 30 Days to Understanding the Bible, and I think that is one of the greatest resources in terms of getting the big picture of what the Bible is and what the Bible says and how to understand it. So I highly recommend that book called 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. Uh, it'll take you 10 to 15 minutes a day over 30 days, uh, give you the big picture, the 30,000 foot view of the Bible, and uh, that's incredibly helpful. I cannot overstate that. I think that's a great resource and a good tool to have. So that's all under make a plan. Have a plan. Uh, get, get a Bible app. Get a new Bible. Um, pick up a book like 30 days that will help you understand. But have a plan. What's your plan going to be? Are you going to get in the Bible every day? Are you going to get in the Bible three, five days a week? What's going to be your plan? Make a plan and try to stick to it. Uh, my next suggestion is to pay attention to translation. Particularly if you are new to reading the Bible, translation can be uh, a little more important in that situation. There are lots of modern English translations, and for the most part, they're all very good. There are some differences. Uh, there are some weaknesses to some of the translations, but for the most part, you can pick up just about any modern English translation, and it's going to accurately convey to you in your own language what was written in other languages uh, a couple of thousand years ago. And so they're very helpful to have. We use what's called the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for that. I won't get into all that, but I find it to be, uh, to be a nice combination of accurate and readable. The Bible, uh, particularly the New Testament, was written in common language of the day. Some of our translations employ language that is not common language of the day. But I think there's a, a sense that it's maybe more spiritual to read a translation that uses lofty language. Uh, but that's just simply not how the Bible was written. And so I'm not against those translations. I uh, employ those translations in study and, and look at them often. But for daily reading, I would recommend something that, that conveys the message in the language that we use today. Because uh, I believe that's how it was intended to be written and translated. Uh, so make a plan, pay attention to translation, and then finally read the Bible to know Jesus. Read the Bible to know Jesus. Don't read the Bible just to know the Bible. I encourage knowing the Bible and studying the Bible and being aware of what it says. But all of that is for the purpose of knowing the God who reveals himself in the Bible.
So read the Bible to know Jesus. Make it part of your personal relationship with him. Like you read text messages from a friend. Or like you read an email or or, or some sort of message that comes through from somebody that you know and have a relationship with. Read the Bible to know Jesus. In John chapter 6, verses 66 through 68, Jesus had just said to a large audience very difficult things about what it means to follow him. And I just want to highlight what he says next in the response of one of his disciples. It says, from that moment on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. He has the words of eternal life. We read the Bible to know him, to experience eternal life, to be with him. In conclusion, this is the word of God. Read it, receive it as such, and be transformed by it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We don't take for granted the ease of access that we have to these important scriptures today. We don't want to miss the fact that many have lived and died here on earth without having the Bible in their own hands the way that we do in our own language. God, in 2020, may we be people of the word, not people of the world. May we be transformed by it. May we be renewed by it. May we be sent out by it. God, build your church as we look to your word. And may Redemption Church, however long we exist on this earth, always be Bible-centered. God, keep us rooted in your word. Keep us rooted in in your revealed truth that has been passed down from generation to generation. And God, before we move on here today, I just want to thank you and I want to praise you for the redeeming work of Jesus Christ that is recorded in these words. And if there is anybody here today who has not been personally saved by what Jesus Christ did for them by dying for their sins on the cross and Three, on the third day, rising from the grave to conquer both sin and death. And today you're calling them into a personal relationship with you. I pray that you would draw them, even during these moments, that you would draw them to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for salvation and for eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.